I'm, I'm actually going to talk about one of the most bizarre love stories in the Bible. And I'm only going to do a little bit today. Um, it may be that this develops into like me going through the whole book. I, I don't know yet. It depends where God takes me with it. But we're going to look at Hosea. So if you, if you want to open your Bible, and we're going to look at chapter 1 of Hosea. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's in that bit at the end called the Minor Prophets. They're called Minor because they're not allowed to grow over four foot three. Because the, basically they're called Minor because they're short. They're not long-winded like Isaiah and Jeremiah and things. They, they said it all succinctly. So we're going to look at that. But the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to... Um, share a bit of my life story, my testimony. Because there's, there's two things that happen to people in church. They end up either with an incredible relationship with God or they end up being religious and unhappy. And I don't want anybody in Faith Life's family to be religious and unhappy. So I just, want, I just felt back with God just to steer us in a few things this morning. Now, I'm going to start with, if you, if you can imagine that I, I am no longer the man that I was when I was a young teenager, which is good. Um, I grew up on a, on a council estate in the north of England, and uh, the kids that I ha- hung out with were a bit like me. That is, we used to fight all the time and get into mischief. But as we grew up, we got into more and more mischief. And uh, I used to hang out with, with some uh, lads that lived around the corner. One of them was my older cousin. And, um, and over time, sort of in my sort of early teens, I started to go wrong. Things started to go wrong. And uh, I got into... Uh, I hope Cheryl knows this, by the way. <laughs> I'm thinking, have I ever told her this? I got into some, like, I, started, I got into some petty theft. Okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> yes, you did. I can tell from your face. So, <laughs> it's going to go well this morning, isn't it? <laughs> Have we got the recorder on, by the way? Brilliant. Can we cut that bit? <laughs> So, so I, being like an intelligent guy off a council estate, I had a system worked out. It was a cool system. Basically, I was into comics and American comics and things, still am. But I had a system worked out where I would buy one that was larger than the others. And every time I went to buy one, uh, I'd slip another one inside, put it on the counter, pay for the one that they could see and walk out with two. It was a great system. It was a great system. It was very cunning. But at the heart of it was something much deeper. And this, what was at the heart of it was that I was running from God. There was this like tension inside me that, that basically knew I needed something and kept getting drawn to this, this Bible that sat in a, in a drawer next to my bed and that I'd been bought as a christening present and me running from God. And it... And I, I was running as hard and as fast as I could away from God because I didn't want the God that I saw, the God that people presented to me, the God that people talked to me. And I, I thought God was out to get me. I thought he was out to punish me. And the more I got caught up in stuff, the more I thought, 
when he catches me, I'm going to, I'm for it. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to learn to run faster away from him. And he, he, he carried on like that until one day when a guy basically, two events changed the course of my life. And I can't remember which order they're in. So I'm trying to be accurate, but I can't remember which order they're in. And the first event that, that changed my life was, and this, this man doesn't know that he did this. Well, he knows, he knows he did it, but he, he doesn't know the effect it had on my life. Um, on, our, on our estate, there was a newsagent called Natrices. And uh, the son of the, the newsagent was a few years older than me. I knew him quite well. And uh, his dad had this newsagent and post office. So I did my system in, in there. <laughs> Only Mr. Natras was a bit cleverer than the other shopkeepers. And one day, he, he did the thing that everybody should have done, and this is where my system failed, is he picked it, the magazine up and some, the other one dropped out from inside. And I thought, I thought, I've finally been caught. Now, this is what changed my life. Mr. Natra said to me, if you promise never to do that again here or anywhere else, I'll promise not to tell your mum and dad. Have we got a deal? And I thought, that's kind of a cool deal. I'll go for that one. <laughs> I'll go for that one. I'm thinking like, I thought, I, I, I thought that, that I was in trouble. Now, the, ne the, the other thing that happened around that time, and, and I was just presented there with pure grace. Because he didn't have to do that. And the other thing that happened to me is we, we went on holiday and being a northern lad, you went to Blackpool for a week. The, the, the Monte Carlo of the north. So we went to Blackpool for a week. And while I was away at Blackpool, I, and I came back from Blackpool to find that all my mates weren't there. And I found out that they were locked up in jail because they'd set fire to some train carriages. And I thought... Well, thank God for Blackpool, because otherwise I'd have been there saying fire to train carriages. And, you know, shortly, shortly after that, it was, that was just a massive wake-up call to me, those two events. And I, shortly after that, I found myself, I won't say how that, that happened, but I found myself on my knees in my bedroom saying, God, I don't want to run from you anymore. I don't want to run from you whatever I've got coming to me, I'll face it. But I don't want to run from you anymore. And much of the good things that have happened in my life started from there. Because one of the great things about believing in God and one of the things that keeps us from that dry religion is remembering what we were saved from. And that's something I've always carried with me, is to remember what I was saved from. And when we make mistakes in our walk with God, it's usually around one of two questions. Forgetting what we were saved from, or forgetting what we were saved to. And, and that's, that's where the problems come. And so I discovered a God who, was, who, who actually cared about me. He wasn't like this this cosmic cop that was out to get me. And the other thing I found out about God is he wasn't irrelevant and he wasn't old-fashioned and, and he didn't live in a stained glass window, which I thought was really useful. 
And because I learned I could have a relationship with him and, and that I could walk with him. And he understood me and he was, um, he knew what, what I needed and he knew how to talk to me and he knew how to connect with me. And, and I found this incredible God. And for years I walked like that until probably my late 20s. So we were already married. So I want, I want you to contrast this because this is why I'm talking about this this morning. What happened in my late 20s, I look back on and I think Shaul looks back on and it was tragic. Because that, that joy and that life and that relationship I had with God over time got tainted. I don't know how it got tainted, but somehow in the course of a few years, I became the sort of Christian I detested and had put me off Christianity. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, so I, I was finding things like I was picking over little things and that I was judgmental and everything had to be, you know, my way or that, you know, this is the only way you can understand the Bible. And, and it was dry and it was lifeless and it was condemnatory and, and I'd go to church and I'd come away feeling like worse than when I went in. Anybody been there? Yeah, you wouldn't get there then this morning's worship but you, you, you know what I mean, don't you? And, and somehow that happened and, and it happened because I forgot what I'd been saved from and what I was saved to. And somehow that, that life and, and knowing that God loved me changed into religion. And religion kills. Religion will suck the life out of you. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the way you would look at that is that somehow I got myself into a place where I was working hard to continue to be loved by God. I, I, I would pick my Bible up and we'd go from... Uh, me looking in, in God's word and it showing me who he was and, 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 and seeing who he was and, and getting to know him more and, and understanding how he loved me more. And suddenly it had become a list of do's and don'ts. And then it, it got a bit worse than that. And it, this incredible life-giving stuff became a list of rights that I could claim or stand on. And, and compassion just seemed to go out the window. It was all about rights and, and this and, and imposing that. And, and it got to the point where, you know, um, basically, I'd worship, I'd go to church because I believe God required it of me. Not because he loved me or I loved him, but because he required it of me. And I still wanted to go to heaven. So I, I did all the stuff that was required of me. And I, I, you know, I'm living through that. And, and basically we get there because we listen to the wrong things and we're influenced by the wrong people. Yeah. Because what I want you to understand is you don't get to be religious and in that place by choosing to be religious in that place and in that place. You get to be religious in that and in that place because it creeps up on you because you're not smart enough to see it coming. Because you, you don't see it coming and, and, and then it has a hold on you. So I would just want to expose a little bit of that this morning. And um, maybe, you, I don't know, maybe some of you know what it feels like. If you, you find yourself in this place where you pray and you pray, but it's never enough. 
And you read your Bible and you read your Bible, but it never seems enough. And you do good things and it never seems enough. And you go to church and you do all these serving things and it never seems enough because it never is enough. You know, you, you, you pray, you get to the position where you're praying because you need something. And that, that's why you pray. And you open your Bible, but it, it's, it doesn't seem to be alive anymore because you're just too busy to focus on it. And then you drift into this place where you're just getting frustrated with your, your walk with God and, and you're getting just, basically, you're just getting apathetic. It's like, I, just, I don't know why I'm in this place, but I just don't feel like I'm that bothered anymore. And, and so many people find themselves in that place. Not, nobody ever chooses to be in that place, but so many people find themselves in that place. And it's like, like good news which is the gospel, suddenly, over the course, well, not suddenly, but over time, has become exhausting news. Have you ever felt like that? The, the good news became exhausting news, and you can't work out why that transition happened? Well, Hosea addresses a time when that had happened to a nation, when they'd moved from relationship to religion. So let's have a look at Hosea chapter 1. And I'm only going to look at three verses this morning. Um, basically, it says this. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. I'll just explain that in a moment. This is taking place after the nation of Israel. They're in the promised land. They've split into two nations, a northern nation of ten tribes called Israel and a southern nation of two tribes called Judah. Uh, Israel had a bit of a track record of bad kings. Judah had an intermittent record of good and bad kings. And Hosea is sent by God to this northern kingdom of Israel. And God begins to speak to him and he says something Absolutely astonishing. He says this, The Lord began to speak to Isaiah. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry. That's an old word. It means go get yourself a prostitute, lad. And children of harlotry. In other words, you're going to bring up children of that prostitution. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So, Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and she bore him a son. Now, what do we make of that? Well, Hosea, his, word, his name actually means salvation. So God is setting out to save these people. And Hosea um, lives in, in between 770 and 725 BC. So a long, long time before Jesus, but far, close enough to Jesus where everything had started to go wrong. Now, what's interesting about Hosea is you would think that God would be sending a prophet to a nation that was in a terrible state, wouldn't you? Well, they are not in a terrible state. They are in one of their periods of incredible prosperity. Israel is doing really well. And um, it's, it's prospering. It's got lots of influence. Um, and... No one who lives there actually thinks there's any problem at all. So God doesn't just send somebody and say, hey guys, you've got a problem. 
what he does instead is he sends a wake-up call. And these, these people who were living there, they'd basically exchanged that relationship they had with God for a life of apathy and religion. But they thought they were okay. They thought, hey, church is doing great because we're doing great. We're personally doing really well. But what they didn't see is that they were spiritually bankrupt. And you see that pattern over and over again in the Bible in that the church outwardly, or God's people outwardly, can seem to be doing amazingly, but inwardly and in what, how they're living, they're spiritually bankrupt. And these people, they were attributing all their success to their skills, their ambition, their talents, their, their effort. And they were climbing over other people to uh, be the person who got all the attention and be the person who was the centre of everything. And everybody was climbing on everybody else. And they all thought they were okay. Does that ring any bells with today? It's not a new, new place we find ourselves in. The church isn't in a new place. Faith life isn't in a new place. Cambridge isn't in a new place. It's a pattern that occurs all the time. That you can think you are absolutely doing great and you can be totally wrong. God says that actually that's a characteristic of the church at the end times. He says you think you're rich, but you aren't. You're poor. You think you, 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 uh, you're pure, but you're not. You're filthy rags. Because you've made it all about you. And when you make it all about you, you step over from relationship into religion. And you've got a problem. So out of this, um, let me uh, just get the passage. So God wanted to do something here. So you see, what we need to understand about God is he isn't out to get us. Which is good news. He's out to love us which is a good Valentine's Day message, isn't it? Told you I was romantic. <laughs> so he's out to love us. So he wants us to understand the quality of his love and his passion and his heart and his jealousy over us and, and his desire for us. So what does he do? He chooses a prostitute to illustrate that for us because you would, wouldn't you? He's like, if you're God, what are you going to do? I'll, I'll get myself a prostitute to illustrate it to everybody. So that's what he does. Because he wants them to understand where they are and what the state of their heart is. That they've moved out of relationship into religion. Interestingly, this is the first time, Hosea is the first time in the Bible, that the idea of marriage is used as an illustration of the way God relates to the church. From then on in, marriage is always the way God talks about the church. That's why we get all this, the bride and the, the great supper of the bride when we go to heaven and, and God's desire is to present us holy and without spot and blemish to the bridegroom and, and, and Jesus talks about it a lot and John talks about it a lot. And, but this is where it starts. It starts with this guy, Hosea, because God wants us to understand that the type of relationship and, and what he's after with us is that sort of adoration and love and care and um, 
gentleness and um, attachment. But he also wants us to see ourselves for who we are so that we, move, we understand what that love is costing him. You see, when we um, don't connect with God on the basis of love and relationship, it has two effects. It, how do I put it? When you reduce your involvement or your relationship with God to a list of obligations, it stops God being able to show you the fullness of his love. And when you relate to him purely on the basis of obligation, God can't... Uh, what's the word? Um, participate in your life on the basis of relationship. So God's desire is to participate in our lives out of a love relationship. But when we reduce what we're doing to a list of obligations, he can't. So it has an effect on us because we can't experience the fullness of God's love. But it also affects him because he can't love us the way he wants to. It blocks him out. And that's the big problem with, with religious people. God's blocked out and that's why they're so frustrated and so apathetic and it's so hard work. And they can't understand because... They're working on the basis of obligations. Now, I'm going to explain that in a minute. You see, God's love, when we see it in, in, in his word, and when we see it in the story of Hosea, it's radical love. He's prepared to, to marry and go after somebody who doesn't care about him, and he's selling themselves for, for sex, basically. But God's love doesn't give up. It pursues. You see, and, and, and I'm not knocking anything here. It might sound like I'm knocking something, but I'm not. But it, it's all in the terms we use. And when we use a term that says seeker-sensitive, I understand what it means. I understand what it means. He's, he's not putting barriers in front of people so that they can't hear the gospel. So let's make it simple and let's not offend them before we start. I understand that, and that's, that's a good thing. But we have to understand that it's the opposite of how God relates to people. You see, nobody is actually seeking God. God is actually pursuing people. God is the seeker. So seeker sensitivity is fine as long as you know who the seeker is. And the seeker is God. And right through the Bible we see this God who pursues with this wild, radical, fierce, jealous love. And won't give up. He won't stop. Even, any, you know, the, the Israel and, and everybody dreams of every sin they can think of. And he keeps on going after them. Right to the point where he dies for them. Because his love is like that. He's the pursuer. Nobody was bothered about Jesus coming, but he came anyway to pursue. He's the seeker. So if we want to be seeker sensitive, let's be see sensitive to the one who's doing the seeking, the one who pursues. Let's go after his glory, his presence, his spirit, his fierce, burning, passionate love in our lives. Yeah. 
Yeah? You see, the thing that the world is missing and why we can translate and become, a, we can build fantastic churches that are all religious is this. People forget that, that, that we are meant to be those who show that fierce, burning, passionate love of God. That's what draws people. That's what, that's what keeps people going beyond like putting the hand up. That's what makes them still there 10, 15, 20 years later is that passionate love of God. And we have to introduce them to that God who loves with that burning intensity. And we have to let God himself minister to that to them through the power and, and presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. How tragic would it be if, if we, we like turned up and this morning we just had like empty worship. No wonder we get frustrated. No wonder the church gets frustrated. Is it? You see... Now, I'm going to confess something else now. Um, uh oh. Um, anyway, so me, I'd just like to share a little story about me, the great romantic. So I was thinking, like, you know, God tells um, Hosea to go and, and get himself a wife. So he goes off to Goma's relations, and, and basically he does a deal. And he gets Goma. It's not very romantic, is it? So on a day we celebrate romance, I thought I'd tell you uh, really how I proposed to Cheryl and, and how romantic it was. Because we've had incredible examples of romance this year. You know, we, we King and, and Elizabeth, Scott and Bethan, you know. Just uh, people proposing, Michael and Hannah. It's just like... And, and they've all done it great. I had a great plan for my proposal. And um, I had it all worked out. And uh, I, I, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I was... Unfortunately, it didn't happen like that. <laughs> what happened was... Uh, Shovel came down to uh, Manchester. I was working in Manchester at the time. To visit for the, for the weekend. And... Uh, we were chatting, and I'd intended the following night to take her out for a nice romantic meal and propose. Um, unfortunately, something went horribly wrong with my plan. And so we were chatting, and I, I was just about to uh, go to bed, and, and I said to Shell, yeah, so, um, yeah, anyway, so tomorrow morning I booked for us to go and look at a house. And she said, well, why, why are we going to look at a house? I said, well, I'm thinking of buying one. She said, oh, well, that's nice. Why do you want me to come and look at it? I said, well, you'll, you'll want to live there with me when we're married, won't you? <laughs> and she said, did you just propose? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> I said, um, yeah, I, I kind of guess I did. I might have done, just, just about there. And she said, well, if you did... I say yes. <laughs> now, despite the fact that that wasn't the most romantic proposal on record, would you agree? Um, we are still here, 28 and a bit years later. <laughs> and I've, I've, made, I've let, uh, made him make up for it ever since. Yeah. <laughs> 
I need a glass of water after that. <laughs> but basically, we made a promise to each other that's grown and developed. And it's not that everything's simple. Relationship isn't simple. There's, there's highs and lows, and we face the, we, we've enjoyed the highs together, and we've faced the lows together. We've had battles, and we've stood together. We fought together. We, we, we have grown together. Relationship isn't easy, but it's worth it. Even if you mess the proposal up in the first place. So, well done, King. Well done, Michael. Well done. Scott, Scott's gone to... Scott's having his bands read this morning. So, well done, Scott. Uh, but, you know, well done. You didn't follow my example and really mess it up on the day. But it... When you come back to it, when you come back to what God's asking Hosea to do, he's asking him to do something absolutely astonishing, isn't he? Because he's not just asking Hosea to marry an ex-prostitute. He's asking Hosea to marry a full-fledged, card-carrying, active prostitute. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? Why, Why would you do that? Why, why would you ask somebody to go and marry an active prostitute in order to bring about God's plans and, and to show the goodness of God? Why would you do that? Um, you see, God has an agenda that we really easily miss when we get caught up in religion. That he is actually obsessed with us. He made us to be loved. He made us to love so if God is going to see his purpose in what he did, he's got to find a way of getting love to us. And he's prepared to use any tactic to do it. And so he does this so that all of Israel and we for down all the generations can see how much he cares about loving us and how far he's prepared to go to show that love. Now, if you're Hosea and you get God's word, what do you think? I was thinking about this in, in the shower. And I was thinking like, okay, I'm Hosea. I've just got this word that I've got to marry an active prostitute and, and just like carry on loving her even though she's not going to love me. How do I, how do, I do that? You know, like, what, what's my reaction to that? And my first reaction to that is that I think if I got that sort of word, I'd be checking what I had for dinner and seeing if I got indigestion. <laughs> After that... I think we, we're at the place where, you know, you're questioning your prophetic antenna. Like, did I hear God? Didn't I hear God? And I'm sure I would reach the conclusion that this was a get-behind-me-Satan moment and I'd attribute it to the devil. Because it, it's so crazy. Because it's not just that, is it? It's worse than that. Because then God asks Hosea to bring up the children that are conceived in her prostitution. So it's not just like, hey, Hosea, go marry this late girl. It's... And by the way, you're going to have to bring up the kids. You, Hosea, get to hold the whole happy family together. Good luck to you, lad. How, how do you feel about that? Why did God do that? You see, there's two ways you can preach a message or you can carry a message. You can carry the words, 
or you can carry the passion. And God recognized that what he was trying to communicate was his crushed heart that Israel had turned from him. The words wouldn't do it. He had to have a heart that was betrayed in the same way. You see, that's the problem with religion. No passion. No heart. Walk away after an hour unchanged. Going through the motions. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit carries the burning, fiery, jealous, passionate love of God that will not stop and will not relent. And that's why it's so, so important that we, we plug in to him, that we give him his place so that we carry that heart and that passion of the message that we carry. So, religion or relationship, how do you spot the two? It would be easy at this point for me to go off and talk about rules and law and all that sort of stuff. And, and I could do that, but I'd lose you. So I'm not going to do that because everybody talks about rules and, and, and law and are you under the law or are you legalistic? And basically, we've all learned to switch off to that. And actually, the reason to switch off to it is... That's not the story that God's trying to show us. It's not, he's actually trying to show us his love. And when we say, oh, I was coming under law, or I was coming under legalism, we haven't a clue what it means. It just means we felt really frustrated, apathetic, and it all seemed like hard work. So how do you do it? How does this work? There's two ways we can approach God. So I'm going to try and simplify it so that we, we get the picture. Hopefully it works. The first way is this. So this is religion. Religion has, right as its core, let's do a deal. Let's do a deal. That's religion. Okay? Now what do I mean by that? You see, God is pursuing us not to convert us to a series of religious practices, but he's pursuing us to lead us into relationship with himself. I'll say that again. God's pursuing us not to convert us to a series of religious practices, but to lead us into a relationship with himself. So the difference between religion and relationship is approach. What's your approach to the way you interact with God? What's your approach to the way you interact with your faith? And it's nothing to do, we, we get all confused here, and this is why I'm steering clear of rules and regulations. And all that. It's nothing to do with structure or organisation or having um, foundations put in or whether you have a good welcome team or not so good Well, It's nothing to do with that. They're just things that help you carry revival. They're things that help you carry growth of the kingdom. And, and so when we, we find ourselves sometimes setting ourselves against things that actually are good things because we're confused about what, what, 
religion is and what relationship is. And, and we, some, some people go around with this idea that it can only be Christian if it's naff. Because they've got really confused. But what it is, is it's a question of approach. How do you approach God? Because what, what what, whatever, however you organise yourself, what, you, you, you're wanting to, what God is wanting is that we exude his life yeah. as part of a family based in love. However you, you set up, however you arrange the chairs or however the speakers are or, or whatever. So, let me, let me for a moment, I, I don't want you to offend you, but let me for a moment um, portray God as a car salesman. Okay? So when you go, how many of you bought, got a new car in the last couple of years? Yeah. So you go along, and you go in, and there's, there's suddenly this guy isn't there. Can I help you? And they're your best friend, even though you've never met them before. It's true, isn't it? And, and you, you can see they're already working out the finance deal to get you to buy this thing. And this salesman, he wants something from you. He wants the most he can get out of you, but give the least away. Whereas you, you walk into that showroom and you actually have the opposite agenda. You want to give him the least amount possible for the most car and most extras you can get. Is that true? So there's this, this, this dance that goes on, isn't there, where you, you, you bluff and you negotiate and he comes down a few hundred quid on your trading and you, you ring up somewhere else and you go back to him and say, they're, they're £300 better than you, but I don't want to go all the way to Peterborough to get it. And, and, and there's all that, that shifting. And eventually you reach a deal. Sadly, that's how religion approaches God. It sees it as a deal. So you've got God, and our picture of God is that he's wanting things from us. He wants your worship. He wants your attention. He wants your money. He wants your Bible study. He wants you doing things. Ultimately, he wants to grow this thing called his kingdom for his glory. And then there's you. You want a few things, don't you? That, how many people here want a happy, if you're married, or if you're not married yet, but you want to be, how many of you want a happy marriage? Yeah. We want happy marriage. How many of you want to be healthy? Yeah. How many of you want a nice house? How many of you want a nice car? How many of you want some chocolate brownie after the service? <laughs> so, we do stuff like praying, like reading our Bibles, like serving, uh, like giving money. And we expect God to do certain things for us. And we might not expect that all to be now, but we do expect him to do certain things for us. So basically our, our approach becomes a deal. If I do all these things, then God's obliged to do these things. And that's how this whole thing works. Now, none of those things in themselves... Nice house, health, um, good job. None of those things are bad. You know, don't get the idea I'm saying they're bad. They're not. They're good. That's why we want them. They're good. 
The problem is the approach that we use. And, and it's this idea that if we do these things, God is obliged to park his blessing truck outside our door and dump them on our front lawn ready for us. That's religion. It's always trying to earn and do a deal with God for the least possible cost. Now, that in itself isn't the whole of the problem. Because that approach to your relationship with God actually produces a heart that carries certain characteristics. It produces religious people. You don't want to be a religious person. Because a religious person with that mindset is very demanding. A religious person will demand grace from you, but will not give you forgiveness. A religious person will demand that you always think the best of them, but will always think the worst of you. A religious person will require that you are not offended with them, but they will always be offended with you, and you will never, ever hear them say sorry. A religious person will... Um, when you're around people like that, you come out of it and you always feel heavy. You feel like you're never quite good enough. You feel like every, every opportunity you thought was going to come along has been shut down. You feel like you're judged. You feel like, like somehow they're always better than you. A religious person can come along and use all the right words and do all the right prayer ministry and at the end of it you feel useless. You feel like you never came up to the scratch of them. Because they're always doing the deal and they've always got to be on the right side of the deal. Because the only way they can be on the right side of the deal is to be better than everybody else so God's more pleased with them than everybody else. The trouble is they make everybody else feel bad. Now, this is what happens with a religious person. This is why I want you to see it because you've all encountered them and you will encounter them for the rest of your life and you don't want to be one yourself either. But basically, what you, what you will find is a religious person, a person that operates on this system of, of relating to God, this approach to God, will use all the right words. They will talk grace, and they will talk grace, and they will talk grace. And it's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, there's a Morecambe and Wise sketch where Eric Morecambe is playing the piano, and it, it's terrible. And Ernie comes along and says to him, that's awful. You're playing it all wrong. And Eric Morecambe says, no, I'm not. I'm playing all the right notes, just in the wrong order. <laughs> and a religious person's like that. They, they will talk grace and they will talk grace and they will walk out the room and you'll feel judged. Because you can have all the right words, but coming out of all the wrong places. Because it's coming out of a heart of doing a deal. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's why so many of us get frustrated and tired and apathetic and ground down because we never feel good enough in the light of those other people or the other church or, or whatever. So, what's God's approach? Why is that so difficult? The, the, the problem is that that distorts our picture of God. It presents God as somebody... Who, who doesn't want to give you anything. He's just like hold, holding back, trying to do his best deal. 
He's, he's wanting to jump on everything that you do wrong. You never feel that you're going to come up to scratch. You never feel you're good enough to get anything from God. And even if you do feel it, you may be, just because of Jesus, because this is what you've heard, that you are good enough from God, there's always somebody in front of you in the queue, the religious person, who is better than you with God. So they've got the inside track. And, and, and you become shut down for, for them. And, and that distorts our picture of God. Now, relationship. So that's do a deal, option number one. How many like that attractive option for your relationship with God on this Valentine's Day? How many, if you're married, how many of you are going to try that on your husband or your wife this afternoon? Like, let's do a deal. Let's, let's negotiate about how many roast potatoes I get and how many flowers you get. And if I get less roast potatoes than you get roses, then we're in trouble. We know that doesn't work, but it is the way that the church en masse relates to God. And it is the way the people related in Hosea's time. So what's the relationship approach? It's one that God wants us and why he went to all this length with Hosea to, to just go to these extremes. The relationship approach isn't trying to do a deal. What it's trying to do is... It's about a personal God who is pursuing us because he loves us. That's it. Now, I, I, I could expand on that, but that's it. It's about a personal God who's pursuing us because he loves us. He's coming after you. He's coming for you. He's coming to give to you. He's coming to care for you. He's coming... To, to share his heart with you and his passions with you and his love with you and, and, and the, that, that, that deep cry that is in him. He wants to share it with you so you can share it with everybody else. It's not about a contract. It's about a real person who made us so he could love us. You see, the real sadness for me is that I see so many people running from God because they think he's that guy, that cosmic cop that's just trying to catch up with them to do them down. And they keep running and they keep running. And then I, I see people who genuinely felt God coming after them, genuinely felt God pursuing them. But somewhere along the line, they met somebody who presented this other God to them who was angry with them and, and just wanted to judge them and put them down and make them feel small and, and tell them everything that they were doing wrong. You see, we all, this is the thing, we all know what we're doing wrong. Some, what we need is some good news to tell us how it can change. And, and because we've had this, this God presented to us, he's, he's quite the opposite, he's distant and remote and, and, and withholding and... And, and judging, we feel like we just can't connect. There's just no love relationship there with that. We just can't connect with that sort of God. And, and, we've, and we just get cut off and it's tragic. You see, God has a particular type of love. And it's a love that cannot ever be explained or experienced in lifeless religion. 
It's a love that doesn't matter what room you're in, how you go about things, what you do in your church. It doesn't depend on anything like that. It just depends on him. It's, it's like, it's a raw love. It's a radical love. It's a, it's a wild love. It's an untamed love. It's, it's, it's a love that doesn't ever fit in boxes. It, it does, the minute you think you can explain it, it's moved again and, and it's got a new dimension and a new facet. And every time you think you know how much God loves you, there's more. It's that sort of love. And you can't fit it in a dull, lifeless, lifeless box. It, it, it's, a, it's a sort of love that won't, refuses to stop worship, even when we try. It just won't do it. Because he's after capturing our heart. He captures hearts. He's a heart capturer. He's not a dull, lifeless misery. He's a heart capturer. He's the great romantic. He romances us. He, 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 he boxes us in. He stakes us out. He pursues us. Because he will not relent. He will not stop till he finds us. He's the most incredible God. You know, I'm really... I'm just about finishing. I'm really... Uh, Grateful that he didn't stop when I got to that point of good, where good news had become exhausting news. Um, it happened for me in 1994. So this is a long time ago. That's why it's not me anymore. You'd be grateful to know that. Because I'm not going to make your life a misery for the next however long we exist for. Or till he comes again. Um, in 1994, I got to the point that it became so exhausting that I was walking away from God. And we had a friend, a guy living in Preston at the time, called Mike Hocking. And I was talking to him, and he lives in New Zealand now, they emigrated. And um, I was talking to him, and he persuaded me to give God one more chance, because he said, God's not like that. Although you know, and in your head, and you cannot see at all, that, that, that God is anything different from, from that, that, that religious life you're locked into, that, that, I don't know, whatever. He is. And he said, I want, he used the wrong language, he said, I want to do a deal with you. Because Mike was a car salesman. <laughs> I want to do a deal with you. He worked for Volkswagen. And um, he said, I, I want to do a deal with you. If you... If you will go to this place for one night and it doesn't work, I promise I'll never mention it again. I thought, that's good. that get it on my back. Unfortunately, it involved driving right across the country to go to a meeting in the middle of a week. Um, and so I got in my car. I drove, and it was raining because it's the north. And I drove right across the Pennines and up to the northeast. And I arrived outside this church. And I'd never been anywhere like that before. And the church had a high wall with barbed wire all around it. And it had gates that were made out of barbed wire. And it's in the middle of like all these tower blocks in Sunderland. And 
I arrived two hours early, and I'm sat in my car thinking I'm going to get mugged before I ever get there. <laughs> thinking, do I wait? What do I do? But I waited, because I thought, I'm going to give this my best shot, because it's all or nothing now, because I walk away today if, if this is it. If I, don't, if I don't find the God that I believed in when I was young, I walk away. And so I did what any normal person would do in the middle of that tower block estate with the barbed wire all around and, and the kids like eyeing up your car from the corner and, and stuff like that. I did what you would do. I sang in my car worship songs for two hours because that, that's what you do there, isn't it? Because I wanted, I wanted God, if he was real, to show me that he was the God of my youth and not the God that he'd become. And so when this, this place opened, I didn't go in. I watched, I watched the people go in and I thought, hmm, they're not my sort of people, you know. <laughs> and eventually, just before the service started, I walk in. And I walked into this, 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 this church and something that had never, ever happened to me before just changed my life in the space of five minutes. Some people call it the Toronto Blessing. And you can think about all sorts of things relating to that. That's what this church was known for. It was um, Ken Gott's church in Sunderland. And I walked in. And this is what happened. I walked in and I physically felt this huge, huge blanket just in the whole place. I have never felt the presence of God like that. I'd never, I'd never felt the presence of God. And I just walked in, and, I, and it was like, it was like walking, I, I, it was, I like went in like this, and I went, oh, it was like walking into a wall. And I thought, he's real. He's here. And you know, I feel okay. I haven't been hit by lightning yet. This, this is okay. This actually feels Nice. <laughs> He's there for me. And it's just like, I don't know how you know these things, but I just say, you know this weight, this, this blanket? I just thought, I just knew it's love. It's just love. There isn't anything except love. That's how he feels. And so I stopped running again. And... God changes lives progressively, but sometimes he changes them in five minutes. And that's what he did with me. And all that, all that stuff, it just melted away. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. I, it was like me and God in a room of hundreds of people. And it didn't matter. It was just me and him. See, that's relationship. God didn't negotiate at all. I didn't, know she, I didn't negotiate. I just go, I give up. I give up. I surrender everything. I give up. I, I was a stupid God. I didn't know you were like that. Well, yeah, I did know you were like that, but I forgot. You see, we can choose 
religion and we can choose to come under religion or we can choose relationship. Despite what film titles might say, it's not complicated. It isn't complicated. It's simple. But we have to see the difference. And that's often where we get stuck. We don't see the difference between the two. We don't see the difference between what it feels like. We don't know the difference until you walk into God's presence and all you feel is love. And you know, it's a bit corny, but actually that's all you need. You just need to know he loves you. And then it's a bit like the proposal. Everything grows from there. Even if you mess the proposal up like I did, everything grows from there. So I don't want you to come under religion. I want you to see a God who loves you like that. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.